John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 220.HB0202, certificate number 51449, Christian Science Reading Rooms. I know what you're trying to do, and you think I can be had, don't you? Nobody knows that book. Nobody. Well, I can move it. Amen. I can move it just as quick as you can. No, sir. Everybody say nobody moves that book. Nobody moves that book. Say it one more time. Nobody moves that book. And a third time. Nobody moves that book. One more time. Nobody moves that book. No, sir. Nobody. Let me ask you this, John. Do you like Christians? Do I ever? Some of my best friends are Christians. What about science? Do you like science? I love science. Some of my best friends are science. (laughs) Like... Just lab coats with nothing in them walking around. <laughs> I actually do know uh, some scientists that you could describe as lab coats with nothing in them. <laughs> Where's your soul? <laughs> what about uh, reading? Do you enjoy uh, reading from time to time? I do. I'm, I, think I, I think I can say that I, I enjoy reading. I'm a reader. That used to be actually an epithet uh, when I was in the rock and roll business. Oh, really? If you saw somebody backstage? We pulled up outside of a club in... Uh, like San Antonio and we were playing a show with the band Carissa's Weird and we were sitting out, it was a hot day, we opened up the van, we were all sitting there waiting for them to arrive and they drove into the parking lot, rolled down their window, you know there are six people in that band and they're looking at us out of the windows of their van they rolled the window down and somebody in the van shouted Readers! Because <laughs> we were all reading <laughs> And we looked Did they up throw like, like a TV at you or something? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Empty beer can. We were like, whoa, readers. Never heard that used quite that way. Watch Gilligan's Island, losers. <laughs> readers. One time, I think this happened to my college roommate. He was walking down the strip in Vegas with a friend. And somebody uh, is standing in front of the casino and he sees him and he says, hey, you look like a reader. And he hands him one of these glossy um, brochures for like escorts and strippers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a reader. Yeah. I'll, I'll, per, I'll peruse this. Yeah. Hey, dig into this tome. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks for the wreck. <laughs> so you like Christians? Yeah, I do. You enjoy science? I do. You enjoy reading? I do. I have one other question for you. Hmm. What do you think of rooms? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. in, just in general. Yeah, we're in one now. I They serve a purpose. 
I'm kind of a, a, you know agnostic on rooms, but yeah, I'm, I guess I'm pro room. And you're in favor of imagine a world without rooms. No, you're right. You're right. I'm I I like rooms. Got to have them. Yeah, pro room. <laughs> I don't know. Is a world without rooms just all outdoors, or is it just un, undivided interior spaces? What is a world without rooms? Yeah, I guess if you just had a house with no rooms, you wouldn't say it was a big room. You'd say it was a house. You, you just wouldn't. You walk in and it's just a big empty floor, like a, like a boat show before they set anything up. Yeah, right. Although, you know, even in garden design, they talk about the rooms of your garden. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So room you, is a term of landscaping too? Yeah. If you go and you kind of make a little seating area here and then you make, you put some photinia over here and then this is your rhododendron, you know, they're the little rooms. Your rhododendra? Your rhododendra. Uh, I just want to make sure you that's get the, for our friend. I want to yeah. make sure you get the plurals right. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even think that's right. So if you enjoy all four of those things, yeah. boy, do I have the place for you. <laughs> <laughs> there is a place that combines all four of your interests: hmm. the Christian Science Reading Room, found in the center of large and medium-sized American cities for well over a century. You ever go by one of these places? Many, many times. Uh, they've always been a feature of fascination for me in a city because you're walking along and you hustle bustle. You got your Lamonts. You got your... Uh, <laughs> you got your... Frederick little, and Nelson's? Yeah, your little department stores. What if and, the show is all about bygone Seattle department <laughs> stores now? Sporting goods. And then you come upon a room that's like, the window is full of books and pamphlets, but they're not really for sale. Everything is sort of taupe. In color, <laughs> you look inside and it seems like a waiting room for something, but but that's all there is. There's no people in it. Yeah. It, they've always been very curious places, but I've never really darkened their doors. I also have never gone inside. And it seems like something one of us would have done. Right. Why didn't we just walk in? Just like, hello, you got books in here. Let, what's your story? And I think the reason people don't go in is because there's a name of a kind of offbeat sounding religion in the title. And especially a religion that sounds a little like Scientology. It does. Which also owns real estate in major American cities and has visitors. Yeah, centers. that's exactly right. I think that spooked me because I used to talk to Hare Krishnas in the airport for hours. And sure. I wasn't afraid of engaging. I'm sorry you missed all those people. flights, but was it, it was probably worth it. You know, it was back in the day when you went to the airport and just hung around. Six it, hours early, I'll have a whiskey and soda and uh, chat up for Hare Krishna. <laughs> there wasn't all that security. Yeah, I used to go, you know, smoke weed in the stairwell and then go talk to religious people. <laughs> but yeah, it was the, it was the Scientology, um, proximity. They must hate that because it's I'm just sure an accident. Do. I'm sure they do. It hasn't. Yeah. Right. They're not connected in any way, but also I feel like the fact that you go in and the door closes behind you. Oh, I see. You, th you think something's going to, you think it's a death trap. Well, I don't I <laughs> Like mean, Indiana Jones blow darts <laughs> are going to fly out of the pamphlets on the walls. And it just seems, it seems like, uh, I guess talking to somebody in an airport or a religious person that's standing out on the street or somebody that approaches you is a kind of receptivity. Whereas going in a door indicates. I have a purpose. Yeah. Or like, I'm genuinely interested in, in hearing your proselytization. Sure. You don't want to give the illusion of effort or, yeah. or initiative. Right, right. I think if there had been sandwiches, <laughs> if, there, if the sign had said like hot coffee, I think I definitely would have visited. They seem to always be staffed by maybe like nice old ladies. Mm -hmm. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a bowl of Tootsie Rolls or uh, butterscotch lifesavers that they don't make anymore or, you know, something like that. I, have, I, I don't know if there's snacks. Yeah, and I'm, I was always looking for places to read, too. But, I mean, I needed a coffee. 
it's yeah, and it's not clear. C- could I just come in here with my copy of uh, <laughs> right. you know, the varieties of I, religious experience and sit no, and read like, it? Yeah, what if I'm reading like <laughs> The Girl on the Train? Like, can I just sit in there with a bestseller and read? Right. Is it a Christian Science reading room or is it a Christian Science reading? Room. They need to punctuate it more. It could be a Christian science reading room. Exactly. For Christians who want to come in and read about science. Like if I have a copy of a Stephen Jay Gould book, but I can, you know, talk about how I've been saved. Sure. You come in and you're like, I'm reading Guns, Germs, and Steel or whatever. (laughs) I'm fascinated by the panda's thumb, (laughs) but I also uh, have a close relationship with my Lord and Savior. Can I sit in one of your chairs? And they'd say, sure. Another thing, I think, if there was a wall of books that, you know, that seemed like well-read, leather-bound books, books across a wide variety of topics, I would have felt found it more enticing, but it seemed like uh, it was a small library. Yeah, all the books seem like they're face out, which yeah. kind of happens in a, in a struggling bookstore, yeah. or just a bookstore that has like two books and a bunch of pamphlets to show, which I think is the case. Yeah, it's like a grocery store in Romania in the 70s, where it's like, we have 11 cans of tomatoes, and they put them, yeah, they arrange them in pyramids and stuff to make it look like there's there's an Asian market buyer house that really has that vibe where you're kind of like wondering like what which Asian society's criminal organization is this a front for (laughs) you know (laughs) or it could be Russians I'm you know I don't want I'm not generalizing racially sure just culturally for sure there was a store like that in Venice I was living in Venice California last year there was a little store around the corner from where from my house that had clearly never sold anything or hadn't sold anything in years. You couldn't even find a candy bar in there. The shelves were stacked with like, like unopened boxes, unopened shipping boxes, but there were always six guys standing at the cash register doing some kind of transaction, buying lollipops, I guess. And, uh, you know, the place by my house, there's also no people there. So you understand why they have no groceries. Oh, right. You know, that's the, that's the amount of groceries you want to have if you have no customers. Uh-huh. You also want to have no groceries. Well, so that brings us back to Christian Science Reading Room. Is that the number of books you want to have if no one's coming in? I have never seen, when I peek through the window, I don't see people in there. And that's what fascinates me about them. They're in all these cities. Yeah. You know, you'll walk out of your hotel in Fort Worth and, or Indianapolis and you'll walk by a Christian Science Reading Room. There's a network of these things. Yeah. And there's no it's prime real estate. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a place where you can walk in and you get lowered into your, whatever your spy organization's secret headquarters <laughs> is, you know, because what, what are they? Sure. What better way to keep other spies out <laughs> right. than to be, than to have a little old lady in there is like, oh, do you want to talk about Christian science? Just put the name of a slightly off-putting religion <laughs> on your signboard and you will never be troubled. Yeah. You don't even see like ho- homeless people there, which other is not a problem. It's not a... Well, that's the other libraries have because sure. they don't offer coffee. If they did, I think that I think there'd be a lot more people in there. Coffee, yeah. The I so, know coffee isn't an enticement to you, non-coffee uh, drinker, but for a lot of us, it would bring us in off the street. I have my own like off-putting religious hangups here. Yeah. yeah. So, so hot coffee, I'd be like, no, no sir. Thank you, <laughs> den of vice. Get behind me, <laughs> Satan. <laughs> The, yeah, what would entice you? Would it be like bologna sandwiches? What what, what would bring you in off the street? Bologna on white bread? Bologna sandwiches? <laughs> Let me just ask you one question. Does it have Miracle Whip? All right. I'll join your religion. It's got to be olive loaf. It's got to be the kind of the square bologna oh. with the weird red and green flecks. Oh. That's that's all I will eat. No, thanks. <laughs> well, I have religious reasons. Yeah. We have to eat the weird red and green flecks. No, not really. Um... The story of the Christian Science Reading Rooms dates back to the year 1866. Oh. When a woman named 
Mary Baker Eddy. She's actually not named Mary Baker Eddy at this point. She's named, she has other married names. Mm -hmm. She's already been married once and she's about to be, uh, she's widowed uh, and she's about to be divorced from her second husband. So her name is Mary Mary Baker Baker Gower Patterson something. And she slips on an icy sidewalk in Swampscott, Massachusetts. A few this blocks is from how her home. so many religions get started. Can you imagine like the first scene of the movie is just going to be a, like Muhammad is like about to go into a cave and he slips and falls on the <laughs> ice. a daisy. <laughs> Bonk. I guess, uh, you know, you have to have something, to, some inciting event to kind of get you away from the workaday world into whatever mental reverie space is mm-hmm, needed mm-hmm. to have religious epiphany. And Buddha had his lotus tree. And uh, Mary Baker Eddy had some guy who didn't shovel his walk. Uh-huh. <laughs> Isaac Newton had the apple. <laughs> right. In her case, the thing that fell was not an apple. It was her hip, I think. <laughs> so she's taken home. And doctors in the Christians, later Christian science accounts tell her that it's a very serious injury. It might be spinal. And in some accounts, she only has like three days to live. Oh, I like those accounts. This is, wow. <laughs> well, You're no. a little hard on this lady you've never met. No, I'm saying that if you're going to found a religion. Uh, you want stakes. Yeah, you don't want it to be like, I slipped on the ice and I bruised my elbow and then I, I had a revelation. No, it's like, I was at three days to live. Come on. Yeah, in screenwriting, that's the ticking clock. Yeah. Like yeah. nobody ever told Buddha, hey, if you don't have a vision under this lotus tree <laughs> before <laughs> this clock, this hourglass runs out. That's right. Then Ralph Fiennes is going to show up. <laughs> but Mary Baker Eddy, or whatever her name is, Mary Baker Patterson, I think, has, yeah. a, has a ticking clock here. And while she is bedridden, looking for an answer to her ills, she's reading the Bible, as people did in right. those days. It was the only book there was. She, <laughs> <laughs> like, no matter what book you open, even if it said Oliver Twist, you'd open it. Oh, it's the Bible again. Why do I keep falling for no! this? <laughs> Uh, and as reading through the Bible, she hits upon the story in Matthew chapter nine, in which Jesus cures a man with palsy. Right. And it's not much of a story. I mean, it's, it, the guy gets healed. Don't get me wrong. It's but, a great story because uh, Jesus used to do this kind of thing all the time. That's what I'm saying. He does this every day. A guy brings him a, a person on a mat who's paralyzed. Right. Jesus says, uh, well, guess what? Now you're better. Sure. He and turns then, him into a fish and, or a no, loaf no, or whatever. I, turn him I, into a fish. I haven't read the Bible in a while. Jesus turns <laughs> loaves into more loaves. Right. And fishes into more fishes. He brings abundance. What he, is it? Where does he get wine? From water. Aha! See? So there is some transformation. Yes. In this case, do you think this is more of a water to wine thing? Guy who can't move suddenly a a healthy man? No, I'm not an ableist. (laughs) Uh, But I do feel like Jesus was throwing this kind of thing around a lot. uh, And those were exciting times. And I I wish that we had that. I wish there was somebody doing that kind of thing now. Well. I would like to be relieved of some pains. uh, Mary Baker Eddy actually lived in a world in which that was true. She had a life of sickness. She was an invalid child from a very young age. Her family reported, you know, all kinds of seizures and fits and fevers, food issues. Like she couldn't keep anything down. So, you know, at one point she was just eating bread and vegetables once a day in hopes of just keeping something down. Bread and vegetables. That was my uh, second favorite King Crimson record. (laughs) I think it's like an XTC song. (laughs) Uh, the, and there's something, there's some thought now that these, uh, ills were maybe psychosomatic in nature. There seems to be some well, evidence that's that, a pretty touchy topic even now, psychosomatic illness for Mary Baker Eddy or in general, in general. I mean, I think that the, the complaints that you are describing are even in, to this day, fairly common and undiagnosable in many cases. 
autoimmune issues and people that are, you know, that, that have a, a sort of wide variety of ailments that they can't quite find a, a focused cause. Sure. Uh, and, um, and I don't want to say that none of those people have some heretofore undiscovered virus right. or just need the right doctor to say, Hey, that's Crohn's. But, You're- but psychosomatism is kind of like a, I would imagine that there are people who are accused of, not accused of, but who are diagnosed as having a psychosomatic illness when they would really, uh, resist that diagnosis. Sure. And Mary Baker Eddy probably would as well. These are kind of later biographers saying, hey, some of this kind of sounds like mental illness. And she had an unhappy childhood. She had a mean dad. Oh, another mean dad. Your typical stern, Midwestern, religiously strict dad. Come on, dad. Who was, you know, beat the kids or whatever. And maybe this was her way of actually getting some kind of autonomy. Oh, sure. To be like, hey, guess what? I can't eat the meat, dad. So it's like a reverse Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Yes. What's it called when you're... <laughs> when, you're the, when you're the child? I think it's called House Munchen. Huh. Munch, Munchausen. Munchausen. House, 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 house munch. She's actually eating drywall. It's a kind of, it's a kind of pica. <laughs> she also inherited from her dad, very good looks. It was often commented oh. at the time that she was the village beauty. Oh, I wouldn't have thought I, when I hear the term, when I think of Mary Baker Eddy, I imagine a small woman with a gray bun. No, she looked like Jessica rabbit. She was a buxom, <laughs> she had a tight red cocktail dress, just slid all the way up. She wasn't bad. She was just drawn that <laughs> That's way. That's why she fell on the ice. It's so hard to walk in those heels. <laughs> no, uh, you know, when you see p- pictures of her today, it's often as an old lady looking at you dourly from the cover of one of her pamphlets. Sure, that's what makes the religion seem serious. <laughs> that's why people don't go in the storefronts. <laughs> but in fact, uh, you know, when you look at pictures of her when she's young, she does kind of look kind of hollow-eyed. She's like a goth girl. I'm into but that. A, yeah, that's not going <laughs> to hold you off That's for my scene. Sure, dark, sure. dark, empty, uh, cavernous eyes. But because of the health problems that gave her those cavernous eyes, she spent her life kind of in search of, of cures. Hmm. And this was an age of fadism in America, right? I'll say patent medicines. Right. Uh, these, all kinds of quackery, and some of which we still practice and have entered the realms of pseudo-quackery, you know, right. like homeopathy and allopathy, which I think is the opposite of homeopathy, mm-hmm. but I don't get how that works. Or you would zap people with electricity or sure. give osteopathy, them, give them vitamins, uh, you know, whatever, um, John Clark Kellogg was doing at his sanitarium, shoving shredded weed, <laughs> shredded in people's, wheat. people's yeah. veins, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. I mean, we still, I mean, I'm going to a chiropractor now, but also, um, I have a lot, we've discussed my friends that are getting wheatgrass juice enemas in, uh, in Arizona, mm-hmm. even at this very moment. And at the time, that was a thing. You would go to the country and somebody would uh, do something weird to you and you would hope that that was the thing. And uh, in her case, she uh, attached herself. The way place she ended up was with a guy named Phineas Quimby. Phineas Quimby. If you were going to invent a name <laughs> for a 19th century uh, medical quackery fattest. I don't suppose it's Phineas T. Quimby, is it? Oh, I almost hope it is. Oh. Uh, that is a great name, Phineas Quimby. He was a mesmerist. Was he a mouse? <laughs> he was a little <laughs> mouse that dressed in a, uh, a doorman's jacket for some reason. <laughs> but nobody ever commented on it. No, he was kind of a gaunt, serious looking human with a kind of the eccentric beard that you want your uh, shaman to have. Sure. And he was one of these uh, guys who would find rich ladies and tell them they needed to be hypnotized in his parlor. And it would make their their gouter arthritis better. (laughs) I didn't know that was a kind of guy that you could be. 
so she hooks herself up to this guy and immediately feels better. And this idea that, um, you know, mesmerism and hypnotism, you know, as Christian, Christian scientists later disavowed hypnotism, hmm. Mary Baker Eddy would often say, you know, no, 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 I'm not doing the Quimby thing. But this clearly shaped her thinking. Hypnotized. So when she fell on the ice and read in Matthew 9, she has a religious epiphany when she reads about Jesus healing this man. And as she later said in, in her book, I gained the scientific certainty that all causation was mind and every effect a mental phenomenon. And I don't know if that's in the text. <laughs> like, I don't know if I would read Matthew 9 and think, of course, all causation is mind. Well, so this is also a time in, um, in American history, especially where science is also uh, like there's a, a proliferation of new sciences and there is kind of a, it's unclear to people where science begins and ends. So you have phrenology, which is another pseudoscience, mm -hmm. but you also have... Feeling the bumps on people's skulls. Uh, right. But you also have, um, you're calling things science, maybe incorrectly, but, but uh, earnestly. Sure. Right? You're, you're imagining science. It, it was, we were undergoing a, a revolution of science. So you had all these spiritualists that would tell you what your dead relatives were right. thinking and that, you know, your late husband Hubert is in a better place or whatever. But then you also had these people who would like zap you with tiny electric shocks for your gout. Right. And then there was like the Venn diagram of like, it's the same thing actually, you know, like spirit is science. Because we were... I mean, prog progress was happening so rapidly and it all kind of seemed like magic. Now we have electric light. Now we have cross-country locomotives and telegraph across the, mm. uh, the ocean. And, and it was, uh, yeah, it was like such a heady time. It seemed like every time you turned around, every time you slipped on the ice, maybe you would have a, <laughs> a new revelation that was going to connect the Bible to something true. That's the other thing that's going on is Americans in the 19th century are fascinated with primitive Christianity. And maybe it's related to, I don't know if it's a new country or a new, or the new technologies, but just the idea that Christianity also can be reinvented. Right. Well, in a return to first principles, as right. things get confusing in modern times, everybody exactly. wants to go back to something like uh, the Ur text. And maybe just reading, reading in the Bible and reading accounts of miraculous healings and things and thinking, well, I haven't seen that in Methodism for a while, but, <laughs> but hey, there's this guy out in the country with electrodes, you know? Yeah. Um, so you can start to see where people would connect the dots. And in Mary Baker Eddy's case, she comes to the conclusion that the universe is an illusion. It, you know, one of the central tenets of Christian science to this day is that God is mind and God is infinite. Yeah. I don't know. I'm with you. You believe both these things. I'm with you so well, far. Well, here's the kicker after the semicolon. Hence, all is mind. So if God is infinite and he is mind, he's a mental, spiritual state or whatever, then we are within the mind of God. Oh, so this is also like a, um, a child of Descartes and Hegel. I mean, it's like a philosophical right. I mean, stance. It's just that I don't think those guys applied it necessarily to the fact that their, their, uh, their the, toilet the, room wasn't real. Right. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so yeah it's exactly it's what philosophers would call idealism the idea that there is no i guess descartes would have said there's it's dualism there's both mind and body sure and Mary Baker Eddy went even further and said, no, actually, there is no body. Everything is an illusion. As a result, we should be skeptical about the senses. And in particular, sickness is an illusion. All my views about my own health come from the mind of God, which is part of me and my mind. We're the same because God's infinite. So as this I perceive is, it. This isn't a Truman Show situation where all of reality is just happening in her mind. Our minds are interacting and interconnected in some way. Yeah, we are all the mind of God, essentially. I see. I think. And as a result, anything that's wrong with you, a sickness is not, that's not something God did to you. Christian scientists did and do resist the name faith healing mm -hmm. for the kind of healing they believe in. Mm -hmm. Because to them that implies, well, first of all, it's a very specific idea of, you know, somebody laying hands upon you and, and you know, maybe then wanting a donation and they want to get away from that idea. <laughs> huh? But also because faith healing implies that God wants you to be sick. And if you have enough faith, you can kind of change his, you can plead for him to intercede and change his mind for you and get rid of the disease. And Mary Baker Reddy goes further than that and says, bro, you're not even sick. Whoa. <laughs> like, whoa. You think you're sick, but you just need to bring your mind, mind in blown. harmony into into the perfect mind of God through prayer and reading my pamphlets. <laughs> and then the sickness will just go away because it was never there to begin with. So what causes a mind to become sick? If, uh, if, I mean, what causes our individual selves to feel illness? If we're all just like bounding around in the, in the verdant fields of God's mind. At play in the fields of the Lord. Yeah. Well, their treatment involves pretty much nothing but prayer that, you know, there are Christian science practitioners. Mm -hmm. They release a list of all their practitioners who can do their thing, which again, start, is starting to sound a little Scientological, but they're very clear that these people don't do anything, nothing therapy like they won't lay their hands on you. They don't hook you up to a nine volt battery. And <laughs> right. They're not going to do Reiki. They're not going to tell you to see a doctor or not see a doctor. All they're going to do is sit with you and listen and counsel and pray with you and for you. And that's it. And maybe read the, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. So, I mean, I'm not uh, like the world expert on, on uh, Christian practice, but this is something that all Christians do, don't they? If you're sick, uh, you would sit and pray with your sick friend? Yeah, the practice is not unusual. But can you imagine the, if this was mainstream Christianity, the idea that the universe is not real and that we're all within the mind of God? Like, she, she read the same stories about Jesus healing people that Christians have been reading for thousands of years, and instead has this kind of weird... Eastern mystical take, you know, ah, not, you know, like ping, nothing is real, you know, like John Lennon dropping acid or something. Right. And she sees the world in a new way. I mean, it's kind of beautiful in, in the idea that this, that this woman in the late 1800s would decide that 
she finally had the hot take of Christianity <laughs> that all of the edifices of, of 2000 years, all of these, you know, like enormously um, elaborated upon stories. Like she finally, I figured it out. She solved it. And she's like, there, standing on the, standing on the, the front steps of the cathedral like pounding on the door with her pamphlet. Imagine the confidence, right? It's so great. I could, I could never, I could never do it. Like I'd be like, well, I don't know. I have, I have an idea, and sure. the pastor would be like, "No, actually, we're not at play in the mind of God." And I'd be like, "Oh, oh yeah, never mind. No, I didn't. Yeah, I, you're right. No, I thought you're right, actually." See, and I'd be home scribbling it all on yellow legal pads, <laughs> grumbling under my, you know, under my breath, like, "One day they'll all be sorry. One day they'll know." You'll be connecting pictures of people with yarn. <laughs> That you're eventually going to uh, poison with with uh, arsenic or something. But she's out there like just Jessica rabbiting her <laughs> philosophy right down everybody's throat. And it's just beautiful. It's like a, it's that American confidence. In 1875, she writes, she's so confident, she writes a book called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, which reinterprets the whole Bible according oh, to this new worldview. That's the key. She offers a new key, a new glossary. I've got a key. <laughs> Bible now with appendix, uh, which just is her, this whole worldview about, you know, how sickness isn't real and here's how you can be healed. And that's what the real Christianity is all about. Nothing is real. It is Lennon on acid. That's right. What was in that ice in Swampscott, Massachusetts, man? Whoa. Some kind of weird uh, fungus spores getting released. Like the same ones that caused the Salem witch hysteria, probably. Uh-huh. Uh, it's Massachusetts. It could be. There yeah. could be spores everywhere. We don't use the term hysteria anymore. But yeah, go on. That's true. I'm sorry. What's the what's the correct, what's the more feminist way to say? Uh, I don't know. Fuhrer. No, mysteria. <laughs> Wisteria. Well, I mean, you, you add the Y to women. Do you take it out of hysteria? Like, do you spell it without the Y? Hysteria. Oh, oh we what's did up? It. High five. <laughs> we did Kapow. it. We have just pushed back toxic masculinity for at least a decade. Uh, over the next few years, she updates her science and health book 435 times. <laughs> So again, you got to admire the confidence. New edition. <laughs> now with uh, fold-out charts. It was mostly to clarify her views and to include testimonials. Sure. Because she was very into this idea that hundreds of people were falling into the movement. All mm -hmm. were reporting miraculous healings. But so she had this revelation and then was she removed of her suffering? She was cured. I guess I should have mentioned that she did get better. Uh. And uh, followers started to attach themselves to her. And through publication of this book and gaining a movement, she becomes a celebrity, you know? She becomes a big American Gilded Age celebrity. It's kind of novel because she's a woman and because she's got this whole uh, engine behind her now. She builds a big headquarters in the uh, uh, the Back Bay neighborhood of Boston. Mm -hmm. they, so they have they get their own big, impressive basilica-like place. First Church of Christ, comma, scientist. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm not sure if that implies that it's Christ, like first church of Christ, the scientist, because again, our principles are not supernatural. We're just using, it's almost like you're starting a chemical reaction or flipping a switch. If you just align your will with God, this is a scientific result of that. Right. Or if it's church of Christ, comma, but the scientist kind. Right. I think that's what it is. You think scientist modifies. Church, not Christ. You don't have, you don't see Christ <laughs> in a lab coat saying, uh, are your gums swollen? <laughs> Triscope. It should be noted, I think, that at this point in time in actual, what we describe as actual medicine, <laughs> pre-penicillin. Owned. Um, <laughs> um, that 
often the treatment was worse than just leaving it alone. You could see that someone who prayed and believed that reality wasn't real might have just as a good a chance as at a positive outcome as someone who said, yes, let's go into surgery or let's take this medicine that you're offering this, or now I'm addicted to cocaine or whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like medicine itself was still a pretty hit or miss. I've put opium and alcohol. You'll feel better. <laughs> well, yeah, I will. Yeah. Cause you put opium and alcohol, I, bud. I feel amazing. My nose fell off, but I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. Um, and I think now we know that there, the mind does have a lot of power over actual healing, you True. know, like think of all these crazy experimental results on placebos where like I've read that even if you tell the patient, Hey, this is a placebo drug. It's just a sugar pill. See what happens. There's still measurable benefit to giving somebody a placebo and telling them it's not going to do anything. Yeah. I, well, I think, uh, <clears throat> there's plenty of evidence that if you just smile, you feel better. That's exactly right. Or there's, um, I think there's results now showing different kinds of placebos work better for different things. Like you give somebody a red one uh, and that's good for, uh, you know, uh, joint pain. Whereas you got to do a green one for allergies yeah. or whatever. Like if you give a red pill to somebody on 4chan, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to feel a lot differently. Give somebody a red pill if you want a different kind of president, but no. So I, and I should stipulate by the way, to those listening who actually suffer from depression, uh, smiling does not, if somebody tells you to smile, then, then you should kick them in the Sure. This is the downside of all this is it can lead to people being like, yeah, the mind's the most powerful thing, but oh, you've got anxiety. Have you tried just like calming down a bit? All you have to do is smile, bro. Depressed? What? Go outside. It's a nice day. (laughs) So yeah, like. That makes me want to murder. (laughs) So you can take that to bat. You can take that to terrible places. Sure. Um, but it's, but it's true. Like Mary Baker Eddy is ahead of the game and realizing that the mind does have a ton of power over actual uh, body immune response. Although it doesn't seem like that's what she's realizing. It seems no. like she's thinking something something else and just hit by happenstance, like stumbled onto a thing that has some clinical truth. Sure. And we have to say that um, we can't use science to validate her pre-Hegelian or pre-Kantian philosophical idealism. We, you know, we, we don't know if right. she's right about the world all being an illusion in the mind of God. Maybe but- it is. But so she's booming. She's got her big basilica in Boston. She's doing great. She's spreading all over. And uh, in 1888, in addition to her big headquarters in Boston, uh, the first Christian Science Reading Room opens on the second floor of the Hotel Boylston, a a kind of schmancy hotel in central Boston. So above the lobby where maybe today there's a Harry Winston or something, Mm -hmm. there's a thing called the Christian Science Reading Room. And this was not that weird then. Um, Publishing houses would often have reading rooms where you could go in and peruse the merchandise. Oh. And this was largely because books were very, or relatively expensive. Oh, those were the days. Like there were no dime store paperbacks or cheap Chinese printing presses. Um, no, no Kindles. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why a lot of households only had a Bible is because it was a big decision if you were going to get the Farmer's Almanac or the Collected Shakespeare. Like you might have to pay that off over months. Right. Um, there's a Christian Science publication I read that pointed out that in 1901, the cheapest version of Science and Health that they sold, which was still kind of a nice bound family thing, you want to have that on your shelf, uh, cost $3.18. However, in 1901, that's between $80 or $90 wow. in today's money. So just to have a nice a nice book on yourself might cost you almost $100. Sure. And this is also the, the factor that leads to Andrew Carnegie creating libraries, libraries in every American small town center, which was not a thing, you know, that the town square would have a library before Andrew Carnegie said, 
people can't afford books. Let's Before he tried to assuage his guilt <laughs> right. by, by being a benefactor to the country. I've been a terrible, terrible, miserly Scottish man my whole life, he thought, <laughs> swimming in his vault full of money. <laughs> to himself. He called over his three nephews. <laughs> the junior woodchucks? Huey, Dewey, and Louie. <laughs> yeah, uh, and... You uh, know, Seattle has a, a great number of Carnegie libraries, and I don't want to disparage the man because we have... we got some beautiful libraries. No, it really was a great gift. Like that guy could have invented DDT and he might still be a net benefit to society because thousands of libraries, yeah. man. Um, and so as a result, the Christian scientists wanted to do this too. They also had literature they wanted to get out there. So they wanted a place where you could come in and check out their stuff. In 1899, Mary Baker Eddy decides that all of their churches should have one. Huh. And the next year, she, she writes in a letter to the board of directors, and this will give you a good flavor for Mary Baker Eddy's public voice. Once more, God thunders in your ears. Get a reading room in Boston and locate it in that part of the city where people will be most apt to go into it. So in Mary Baker Eddy's mind, this is what God is thundering into your ear. <laughs> location, location, location. <laughs> like the idea that if God is thundering, he's not being like, woe unto the people of Nineveh. He's being like, get a well-located reading room. <laughs> Get a nice glass storefront, evenly painted lettering. He really works in strange and wondrous ways. I, I can't make jokes about this because we totally have it in like my Mormon tradition as well. Like if you read 19th century Mormon scripture, God will start out sounding very, you know, he'll be like, take ye neither person script, but go up and spread my word. But then it'll be like, to the people of Erie, Pennsylvania and Buffalo, New York. And you'll be like, whoa. Like what? You can't accept company script in these two towns. <laughs> like the addition of like practical American know-how into scriptural text is something that like does not surprise Mormons. Right. We grew up with it. But, at, but, but in Christian science, God was very specific. At the corner of Broadway yeah. and 14th. And he's thundering. <laughs> Make an offer now. Wave inspection. <laughs> so this is, they purchase a lot of real estate all over the country. And suddenly these things are popping up. And they exist to this day, like uh, the ones that you and I have walked by in downtown Seattle and near the university, there have been Christian science reading rooms in those neighborhoods for over 80 years. Wow, that's phenomenal. Well, and, and the Christian Science Church in downtown Seattle has now been reappropriated or donated, I guess, to the city. And it's now our town hall, which we use for big speaking engagements when a certain kind of literati come to town. I've seen music there. I saw a great Yola Tango show there. All right. I have performed there multiple times. Uh, yeah, you're no Yola Tango, but... Well, it's <laughs> arguable. No, I'm sorry. I missed... That's a perfect venue for a, for a Long Winter Slash John Roderick show. If you want, you can go online and Google me playing the piano song Commander Thinks Aloud at Town Hall. My wife loves shows there because you can sit in church pews. Right. And... We are not the right age to crowd the front of a stage at a Long Winter show. Like, we want to sit in a pew and watch Stephen Merritt and a lady playing the zither. Yeah. And that's what we do. But that... Yeah, that's where you're... Um, your book readings and your, your, uh, like you'll go humorists. see your, you'll go see your Dave Eggers yeah. there. Dave Eggers. Right. You'll go see your David Sedaris. Oh, if, oh, if you can get a ticket to that in Seattle. Many times. Good luck. I've stood outside in the rain waiting for a miracle. Or you're very serious. Like your Anderson Coopers right. will be there, but yeah. A lot, and this is happening all over the country, by the way. Um, Christian science keeps up the nice storefronts, but in many ways it's a religion in decline. Right. Like so many. Right. So um, many others that don't have a prosperity gospel. In an increasingly secular age, religion is a harder sell. And I think there's a few things about Christian science that make it 
especially difficult. For one thing, um, we no longer live in an age where praying is your best bet. Sure, we have penicillin now. Sure, in 19, the 1930s, antibiotic, anti, which I now say antibiotics. <laughs> antibiotics. Like, because anti-B from, uh, from yeah. Mayberry, from right. Andy Griffith's show. Antibiotics. <laughs> uh, antibiotics were invented in the 30s. And, you know, because vaccination goes back to, uh, what, Jenner curing smallpox in the late 1700s. Hmm. But I think what we often don't realize is that there was like a century where nobody really vaccinated anything good. Like uh, rabies and cholera and those things didn't start until the 1890s. So right around the time when Mary Baker Eddy is getting underway and, you know, starting all these reading rooms and churches comma scientist or Church, comma, scientist? Church. Is it like attorneys general? Churches, comma, scientist. There we go. Attorneys general. Science is also getting much better at curing disease. Right. And now you do not need to go to a a nice old ladies parlor. Well, and we start to understand what bacteria really are. and, And then World War II really disseminates that technology widely uh, because now all of a sudden we're saving lives that couldn't have been saved. Right. And that's a real threat to the worldview that this science and health book explains all that's wrong with you because now there's a much more compelling and empirically successful way of curing all that's wrong with you. But also Christian science went through a period in my own lifetime where they were under uh, assault from the government because uh, uh, a lot of kids didn't receive medical treatment their parents refused treatment and then the kids died of things that could have been cured. The Christian Science Church is very careful never to say, don't go to a doctor. But what they do say is, don't do both. You know, don't do us and real medicine. That's not, that there's less efficacy in that. Oh, it's not, you can't double double up. Get get penicillin and also pray and you get right. twice you, as You gotta good, choose. You twice gotta as choose. better. Penicillin or a nice prayer. And... But I, I plenty of parents have chosen, yeah, um, my kid's got diabetes, let's just pray. And sad and tragic things have happened. And in many cases, states have sued, and this has gone to state Supreme Courts. And, and district's and, attorney have, uh, <laughs> have, uh, have prosecuted. Yeah, uh, it's a crazy core constitutional thing, because what are we going with? The, you know, the First Amendment freedom of religion versus the duty of a parent to not kill their children. Right. Um, it's a super dicey medical thing and, uh, uh, ethical thing, ethical thing. What did I say? Medical thing. Yes. It's probably not very dicey from a medical standpoint. <laughs> to give, the doctor's <laughs> like, what should I do? <laughs> to give a kid with diabetes <laughs> insulin. No, these are like no brainers where a doctor in an afternoon could start to set the kid right. And I think that's what's infuriating for a lot of these groups that have seen, you know, take some non-Christian scientist who sees a niece or a nephew or a friend's kid die. Yeah. And uh, die in a, in a setting where well-meaning people are, are in prayer, but there's like a dialysis machine literally like right there. Yeah. Unplugged. Well, why did they put it in the room and leave it unplugged? <laughs> Hard to say. Maybe it was there when they bought the house. <laughs> it's like, it's like how Gandhi used to sleep with naked women to like, to, to test his, his will against temptation. See, I do the same thing. With dialysis machines? I learned that from Gandhi. <laughs> How's it going? I am 04487. <laughs> yeah, they put the dialysis machine there to see if they can withstand the temptation. Sure, to turn sure. It on. Yeah, every reading room has one, a dialysis <laughs> machine. 
<laughs> no vials of uh, antibiotics. What the reading rooms do have is always a King James Bible. That was Mary Baker Eddy's preferred Bible. A copy of Science and Health. That's the and one her, true Bible. And her other writings. Mm-hmm. And then back issues of the Christian Science Monitor and her other pamphlets. And maybe some microfilms and tapes and coloring books for the kitties. Right. Cracked magazine. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot go there for secular books. I think if you went there to read a secular book, they would not kick you out. because no, they're too polite. It's a, And it's the idea is this is a nice quiet vibe. It's a respite from a busy world come into our quiet space. Some of them function as lending libraries, I think, to this day. Yeah. Incidentally, speaking of the, the legal issue, the courts, for the most part, have found against the, uh, the Christian scientists. Really? Is that true? The duty to care for children actually trumps your First Amendment right to have nutty religious practice. I think because you're coming up against someone else's rights, your minor child who maybe has a right to dialysis. This isn't, uh, this isn't exclusive to Christian science. Like what is the, what, how does this apply to Seventh-day Adventists or other people that eschew medical intervention? I mean, this is a pretty live issue for Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, who, right. who do not believe in blood transfusion. Right. A- Adventists some, just oh, believe in breakfast cereal, but... but, but is, is that the only treatment you're allowed to accept? <laughs> I think so. Just more. Now, on. you can choose your treatment, but it's either Fruity Pebbles or Cocoa Pebbles. Those <laughs> but, are... But yes, yeah, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have, uh, have fought the state in this way too, have they not? Right. Because there are many, including childhood diseases, that could easily be treated by blood transfusion. That's a no non-starter for them. And it depends on the country. In Canada and the UK, um, they have no legal status to overturn that. In the US, there's not much case law on this. Like this has never gone to the Supreme Court. But physicians can give treatment over parental objection. Oh. Like it's not unethical procedure to give a child a treatment that the parents are saying, no, 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 no. And none of the, uh, most of the anti-vaxxers in our contemporary culture are not doing it on religious grounds. Yeah, that's, they that's they tend secular. to be more that they they believe in a pseudoscience. They think they have the science, you know, right. there's mercury or whatever, or you got to see this study, the uh, autism, blah, blah, blah. Right. They're not appealing to a, a mystical view of the universe. So this, but this was bad publicity for Christian science. I remember in the 70s and 80s, this being in the newspaper quite often because Christian science was... I think disproportionately prominent in our American culture because of the Christian Science Monitor. That's the weird thing. They owned a daily newspaper for about a century. It, it did not go weekly until two, March 2009. Yeah. It was a daily paper until March 2009. A daily paper that was widely regarded as maybe the one truly like nonpartisan or bipartisan Newspaper. Right. It, it was what we think of as the Washington Post. It was winning Pulitzers into the 1990s when it was covering like Serbian refugee plight. And it, it won a Pulitzer in 2002 for a political cartooning. And this is the arm of a kind of, to many people, wacky seeming 19th century religious tradition. It would be like if the watchtower suddenly of the Jehovah's Witnesses suddenly started producing hard hitting journalism about school vouchers or homelessness or something. But it had been all along. I mean, the Christian yes. Science Monitor was the Manchester guardian of the United States, I guess. And uh, it was Mary Baker Eddy's brainchild. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n dot com slash start in 1883 uh of course this is the height of yellow journalism Mm -hmm. in america Mm -hmm. you know the hearsts and the hearsts new york journal is fighting it out with uh, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World for subscriptions. And by the way, these are not like kind of, uh, you know, in our day, we associate tabloid journalism with the political right. But these papers were both kind of agreed on endorsing Democratic candidates. These were both papers of like kind of the working poor because they were targeted at, at growing immigrant populations. Right. So it wasn't like crazy elderly people watching the fake news like today. It was actually like young working parents that would eat this stuff up. But they incited uh, all kinds of like crazy trends and violence. And in some, in some cases, maybe the Spanish American war. Yeah. The, uh, the stories about Hearst actually saying you provide the photos, we'll provide the war is probably apocryphal, but it's certainly true that, um, you know, in a subscriber rush, these papers would run increasingly lurid and eye catching headlines about any scandal of the day, right. including whatever the Spanish, the Spanish were doing in Cuba. And this led for a, public appetite for a war like the Spanish American war could not have happened without this subscription race. But, but Mary Baker Eddy somehow aspired to be above all this, uh, this dreck. She had, she hated this stuff. She wrote about how the, the papers of today, it's the same kind of rhetoric you read in, in our day, future links, when we also have this kind of tabloid journalism, I hope you're free of this, but, um, you know, she would write these kind of scolding editorials about how the papers just carry fear to many minds and, you know, the lurid worst instincts of humanity and, you know, above the fold. And this all crystallized in 1907 when Joseph Pulitzer's New York World actually ginned up a lawsuit against Mary Baker Eddy. They got some of her estranged relatives and uh, friends to say that she was no longer competent and that her considerable fortune, you know, from book sales and bequest to her church and whatnot should be given over to her kids. Her kids were all in favor of this, sure. surprisingly. So she had to fight this legal battle against Joseph Pulitzer's paper saying she's a crock, she's a fraud, and uh, her money should be given to her heirs. And she gave a series of very lucid interviews, was very persuasive in court. The suit was dismissed, but she always, she never forgot what the papers had done to her. And the very next year she created the Christian Science Monitor, yeah. which, which was going to be the nice kind of paper. Sure. And would not be mean to little old ladies. And then she got her revenge in the end because they, uh, she won multiple Pulitzer Prizes. And where's his newspaper now? She won prizes <laughs> named for their guy, you know? And for years, the it was an independent paper. You know, the, the church has a board of directors to the state, but they would rarely, if ever, interfere in editorial content. It was a successful enterprise until the 80s and 90s and left to run on its own. Well, you know, I have a personal connection here. To the Christian Science Monitor? To the Christian Science Monitor. I knew, personally, Kay Fanning, Catherine Fanning, who was the editor-in-chief of the Christian Science Monitor, 
in uh, in its waning days. I mean, she she became the editor in the early '80s, like 1983. How did and you How did you know Kay Fanning? So Kay Fanning uh, was the owner and editor of the Anchorage Daily News. Ah. Her she was originally married to a man named Marshall Field, who was a. Dis- she was married to a. To a department store. She was a, he was a descendant of the department store This is what they're family. saying. If you change the definition of marriage, you're going to have <laughs> people marrying department yeah, stores. People, you know what? Dogs and cats living together. Kay Fanning be shopping. Uh, but then he, his side of the Marshall Field family bought the Chicago Tribune as part of a consolidation. I, I'm sure the department store was tired of the Tribune writing editorials about their shoe selection and they just bought the paper. And then <laughs> That's he, what Mary Baker Eddy should have done. <laughs> he became, Marshall Field 4, I guess, became, um, you know, like a, started as a cub reporter at the Chicago Tribune that his father owned. I just have to say, oh boy, what a scoop. <laughs> I feel like I, every time reporters get mentioned on the podcast, I say, oh boy, what a oh scoop. Oh boy, what a scoop. But, so there we go. But then he died... Uh, prematurely and Kay moved to Alaska, got a job as a cub reporter on the Anchorage Daily News. By the way, this is another gift of yellow journalism. This kind of Lois Lane thing of all these papers having these young comely girl reporters that would go around the world doing stunts, Nellie Bly kind of stuff. This was actually uh, kind of a feminist result of the age of yellow journalism and maybe helped get, you know, the tradition that got Kay Fanning you know, that job. Well, and Kay was a, was born a Christian scientist. And so she went to Alaska kind of on a spirit quest, ended up writing for the daily news. And the daily news was the liberal of the two papers. The the Anchorage times was the conservative paper in Alaska. And then she met a man named Larry Fanning, who was visiting Alaska. And he was the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. They got married. And then together, conspired to buy the Anchorage Daily News. And so when I was a kid up there in the 70s, the Fannings owned the Daily News and they were sort of heroes of the liberal set up there and super close friends. In cities that used to have two papers, it was always like, you know, this is is our people who's got the wrong paper on their porch. And, you know, my uncle was mayor of Anchorage during this period. So they would have salons Mm. at my uncle's house where all the, you know, the literati of Anchorage uh, were (laughs) hanging around. Some old guy that writes letters to the, to the editor. Well, you know, Alaska (laughs) was pretty, was pretty sophisticated. No, I was about to use the word sophisticated. That would have been wrong. Did people drive by and pick up? So they were like, hey, readers. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely that. Although even the conservative paper up there wasn't what you would think of. I mean, they were just like stolid Republicans that believed in the banks. You know, there there was no, at the time, there wasn't a newspaper up there that would have been like tinfoil hat. Sure. Like in our lifetime, there was so much less culture war, which is going to be hard for the future. It was just like, do you believe in this kind of bank or this (laughs) kind of bank? (laughs) Nelson Rockefeller, glasses are without. But then in 1983, which I mean, I was 14 years old, uh, 14 and 15, Kay ascended to the editorship of the Christian Science Monitor, which was to all of us in Alaska, like a huge... It just seemed like a like one of ours had gone to the show. You know, she was up there with Catherine Graham as like a, a woman editor of a major daily newspaper in America. It was a huge deal. And this is going to seem very odd in the future that the Christian Science Monitor was a just a mainstream thing that wrote influential. You know, if a, if a book got a good at Christian Science Monitor book review, it would be on the jacket for sure. You know, 40% of the revenue came from 
actual newspaper sales, and the church supported it to the tune of 60% of its budget. Wow. And that actually is what led to Kay Fanning leaving the paper. Do you know this? Yeah, because it was like some kind of, there was like it was classic, like we're cutting all the reporters or something. They right? were, this is, they were very early. They decided in like the mid eighties, I think to pivot to video oh, as we say in our day, boo. like they were like, they, they saw the writing on the wall, you know, print, print is not going to survive the next few decades. Um, Ted Turner's CNN is the biggest thing sure. we, we want to be in broadcasting. So they sink hundreds of millions of dollars of, of their you know, Christian science bequest into this broadcasting initiative. Kay, an old school newsprint woman is unhappy and leaves. Like leaves in protest. I remember it was like, she made a stand. Yeah. She was not happy. And, uh, sure enough, like this was a huge money loser. And part of the Christian science, the church of Christ scientists decline today um, churches of Christ scientists. Did you know some of them are like numbered? I think in the early days of the church, it would be like, well, Chicago's got the fourth Church of Christ scientist. Oh. So to this day, there's some of them that are like numbered like WrestleManias. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I'm into that. Oh, yeah. Like, I think all churches should be numbered like that. Like, you want to <laughs> yeah. know, like, like how Microsoft employees are always like, I was employee number 688 or whatever. Well, they do that. You know, we have a first Methodist here. I mean, they number the first banks do of it, their right? church, right? But but not subsequent. Like the the Methodist church in Linwood isn't like the 42nd Methodist church. Because you'd feel bad. <laughs> yeah, you would. I mean, you live in Linwood, so you already feel bad. <laughs> I used to like when we were kids and McDonald's would actually tell you how many billion hamburgers they'd sold. And it would be like a- Oh, that was fun. They'd replace the numbers. So it'd be yeah. like, oh, that was 68 billion uh, last month. And now it's they've sold 71 billion. I think at a, at a certain point after you're over 100 billion hamburgers, you start to look at your hamburger a little more suspiciously. Like, whoa, really? <laughs> it just cheapens it. Imagine. There's been so many. You just picture this fire hose of hamburgers. That's why they changed it to billions and billions served. They don't want, they don't want the imagination to wander. I I, want to point out uh, again, trying to describe how Christian science, how prominent it was during our time. Uh Um, Now it seems, certainly to futurelings, it will seem just like one of many American weird folk religions of the, of the 19th and 20th century like the Oneida cult that we've put in the omnibus before. Right. But there have been two central intelligence agency directors who were Christian scientists. Really? Um, William Webster and Stansfield Turner were both Christian scientists. Um, During the Watergate years, both H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman were both Christian scientists. You're not really doing an ad for them at this point. <laughs> wow, two, I, two CIA chiefs and Haldeman and, and Ehrlichman? Haldeman and Ehrlichman like, were all Christian to, scientists. To somebody our age, that's like, pass. <laughs> but also, let me just run down a list of the celebrities who were either uh, raised Christian scientists or Christian scientists. This better be good. You got to save them. You got to have some like Mickey Mouse Club kids here or something. Are you ready? Yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Wait, really? Raised a Christian scientist. See, Jessica Rabbit. She's got those good Mary Baker Eddy jeans. Oh, wait. Joan Crawford. Literally Jessica Rabbit. Wow. Uh, Carol Channing. Doris Day. My father's uh, 1950s, like, archetypal, like, sex bomb Doris Day. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad's very chaste fantasies. He really loved her. Uh, Cecil B. B. DeMille. Political uh, conservative, by the way. When we talked about John Wayne in the last entry, we did not talk about his politics, but uh, yeah, he loved DeMille. Well, and and that's true. Robert Duvall, also Christian scientist. Robert Duvall, really? Also a um, 
or raised one. I recommend to the future his religious movie, The Apostle. It's a about, great movie. About small town religion. Uh, Val Kilmer, <laughs> uh, Mickey Rooney, and Ginger Rogers. All Christian scientists. Think about all how much of old Hollywood was raised Christian, Christian scientists. Uh, Daniel El- Ellsberg, uh, which will <laughs> well, give you an extra extra flip on the Nixon trip. That's better, though. That's the other side, right? Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen. Yeah. Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Robin Williams. At this point, it's like every glamorous woman between the years of 1930 and 19. 19- 65, basically. Yeah, basically, Christian science was dunking on all other religions in terms of having, they were the Scientology of their day, except they weren't like, uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about Scientology because I don't want to get the letters. I don't want to get the registered letters and the people parked across the street wearing sunglasses. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, they were. They could have been like Ginger Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> She's in all the, you know, it could be Ginger Rogers jumping on a couch or whatever, tap dancing on Oprah's couch. So anyway, it was a, it was a, a really a mainstream religion. Uh, and, you know, and I think it's because they came from a lot of, you know, good Boston and Eastern seaboard families that got on the Mary Baker Eddie bandwagon early. Right. A lot of these people left bequests to the church. So it be kind of became a, you know, a well moneyed church. And that's probably what gets you the big basilicas, the leases on all the reading rooms, the, the newspaper that runs at a loss for decades. But in recent years, they've hit on hard times. You know, if, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but Mickey Rooney passed away. <laughs> <laughs> the kids today aren't really like downloading his YouTube videos. Robin Williams was the last Scientologist. Very, oh. uh, no, sorry, it's a Christian scientist. Oh, that's terrible. Their, you know, their membership peaked at about 270,000 in 1936. Still a small denomination. Yeah, re- that's not. Relatively. Um, maybe because there was not much of a, until recently, there was not much of a push into uh, the developing world as sure. the Catholics and the Mormons and the Jehovah's witnesses all did today. It's speculated to be under a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Like they still put out a list of their licensed practitioners, the people you can go to, to get, uh, help with your to get pray, prayed upon to get prayed for <laughs> and <laughs> just get prayed upon. Wow. That's a little sorry. Harsh. Sorry. And, uh, now it's like, you know, it's, it's now under a thousand people and you can just watch the decline. The church has lost, you know, you can, you can see it go down by like 5% a year or something. And now it's all concentrated around retirement centers. And as a result, the church is in financial straits. They've had to sell off a bunch of those big old buildings. Like the one in Seattle is town hall, you know, big ones in Manhattan and LA are now condos. There was one, two, this is great. There's one, two blocks from the white house, which was, I guess, built in the seventies. It was this God awful octagonal concrete brutalist monstrosity. Mm-hmm. That'll be a future entry in the omnibus mm-hmm. brutalism. I hope so. And, uh, got a lot to say about it. The church wanted to tear it down and sell Cause it's two blocks from the white house. This is prime real estate. Yeah. So they knew they could, you know, keep the reading rooms lit for another few years. If they can just sell this off to developers and the city wants to make it a landmark, even though it's, this ugly brutalist thing. And so they go to court claiming that their first amendment right as a religion requires them, you yeah, know, to, to, to fulfill tear, their service. To, yeah. To do their religious mission, they need to tear down a religious, la- a religious landmark. So they're using their religious privilege to tear down their own building and sell it off for parts. You know, that's not uncommon. Actually, you'll, you'll see a lot of churches with declining membership who have pursued a kind of social justice or community service right. uh, ministry find themselves sitting on these big temples in the centers of downtown uh, centers of cities where their church has a capacity of 800 and they have 42 parishioners and they want to sell the building in order to fund their 
food for the homeless program. And then this, you know, the city ends up in conflict with the church because it's a, it's a landmark of the city. And which argument do you take? And this actually happened in Seattle around the first Methodist church as a matter of fact. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. The, one of the funniest, um, well, I mean, nobody's money problems or so the church is facing financial difficulties. Um, and yet they keep these, they keep the lights on in these reading rooms a few hours a day, staffed by volunteers. Um, it's what Ms. Mrs. Eddie, as they say, would have wanted. One of the oddest financial squabbles they had involves the reading room. And it goes back to the, the failed broadcasting initiative in the 1990s that your friend Kay Fanning was against. The church was losing $80 million a year on its failed, you know, whatever it had, a PBS show and a satellite network and whatever it was trying to build and badly needed the money. And there was a conflict over the inheritance of a man named Bliss Knapp. Oh, Bliss Knapp and Phineas T. I've taken a Bliss Knapp <laughs> before. Uh, his widow and her sister, the Maybury sisters, um, now control his considerable fortune of millions of dollars, which he left to the Mother Church, Church of Christ Scientists, if they would keep his book in print and authorize it as official authorized literature in all the reading rooms. This hagiography of Mary Baker Eddy that he had written, I think in the, I don't know, 20s or 30s, called The Destiny of the Mother Church. And the problem is this book is heretical by Christian scientist standards because it claims that uh, Mary Baker Eddy herself is essentially divine. She oh. is She is Christ. And she is the personification of the prophecy in Revelation chapter 12 about a woman clothed with the sun who will come in the last days. And Mary Baker Eddy herself was very uncomfortable with this book and urged everyone not to buy it or believe it. But now the Christian Scientist Church has this $100 million bequest that they can only get if they make this heretical book, which says nice things about Mary Baker Eddy puts it in all the reading rooms and says it's an authorized biography. But that's kind of a Christ-like uh, posture to take, the, to be uncomfortable with being described as the Christ. Wait, does that mean she actually... Well, that's what I'm saying. The real Christ would say... That he wasn't. He or she was not. It's true that somebody like Reverend Moon, you know, who, who does tell everyone, FYI, uh, you know, I'm Jesus doesn't come off so well nowadays. Right. So it is to Mrs. Eddy's credit that she was. It does seem like right. self-effacement is a quality that the Christ Savior would have. So the Maybury's were going to give all the money to Stanford University and uh, like LACMA, the, the LA Art Museum, the LA County Art Museum. Burn. Burn <laughs> on Christian science. I don't think they picked something that would piss off the Christian scientists. I wonder if Stanford is going to keep their book in print. <laughs> and this went to court. And finally, there was a settlement where I think the mother church agreed to split the hundred million with Stanford and the art museum. They would put the books in the, um, in the in lending the reading library rooms. that's right outside the Christian science <laughs> church, <laughs> make a little hut. They would put it in the reading rooms, but not say that it was authorized. And I think at the same time, they commissioned a bunch of other biographies of Mary Baker Eddy from other viewpoints. Oh, so it's like triple burn. It's like the classic thing where, um, you know, there's fake where's Waldo's hidden, you know? Or like where Superman knows that somebody's going to say he's Clark Kent, so he puts out a million other copies of the Daily Planet saying that he's everybody else, you know? Right. So he can hide in plain sight. Right. Obfuscation. So I think that's, to this day, I think if you go in Christian science reading rooms, which is a pretty big if in our case, you can still see this heretical destiny of the Mother Church book because, you know, hey, Mother Church got to eat. Well, certainly, uh, if anything survives the apocalypse, it will be 
Christian science reading rooms. I am confident that you could like swim through your domed bubble cities and there will be Christian science reading rooms staffed by some nice looking lonely old lady kind of. Lonely old, uh, like uh, multi-tentacled, gray, gray tentacled lady. Cleaning the countertops and, and straightening little pamphlets and, and sorting microfilm in there. So in a changing world, they are a fixed point. Well, we should make it a goal for both the two of us and all of our listeners to patronize a Christian science reading room in the near future. Like patronize them to be like, oh, nice reading oh, room. Oh, great. Good, really Good clean. job. Where are all the people? No, to actually visit, drop by and say hi. Just drop by, see if you can find the authorized biographies of Mary Baker Eddy. I'm going to do it. And that concludes Christian Science Reading Rooms. Entry 220.HB0202. Certificate number 51449 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that anything survives the earth-scouring apocalypse that is nigh It's just going to be a, It's going to be a desolate Mad Max wasteland with a nicely lit Christian Science reading room standing uh-huh. in the desert. And maybe because of this entry or for reasons we cannot predict, our podcast, Omnibus, is preserved within the sanctity, <gasps> the sanctum, santorum. Wouldn't that be great? Of Christian Science reading rooms. Who knows? Who knows what twist of fate? Maybe this becomes the official time capsule of the Mother Church, and right. they, they allow it to be shelved alongside science and health. As it morphs, it, as time goes on, before the apocalypse arrives, it may be determined, Ken, that you are the Christ. As this becomes Holy Scripture. Well, now that I think about Mary Baker Eddy putting out 425 editions of her book, that's a podcast, man. She was Basically. The, she was the first podcaster. Basically, we'll have that many entries by the end of the year. Hey, Mary Baker, how you doing? Well, my cats are sick, but, you know, sickness is an illusion. So. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> but uh, but we hope and pray that uh, that we do survive long enough for you to engage with us, engage with our spirits, because there is no death. There is no it's corporeal all, reality. It's all an illusion. Uh, you're probably hearing this in your either hyper-evolved or devolved minds as we are communicating with you through space and time. Yeah, I think social media deactivation is the same as any other kind of physical ailment. So basically, if we're sufficiently pious, we can keep a social media presence for millennia. What sucks about Twitter is not in Twitter. It's in our minds about Twitter. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So you can come communicate with us at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick but also at Omnibus Project, where all of our episodes are tweeted. We, we include uh, addenda and errata, errata that have been supplied by listeners who have somehow managed to get their feedback back to our day. Right. Um, you can uh, go see my Instagram account, which is wonderful. It's super hilarious. And Delightful. A lot of pictures of food and dogs. <laughs> More pictures of food and dogs. That I love that Talking Heads record. <laughs> Um, you can email us through the mysteries of space time at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. And if you are on Facebook, I encourage you to get off of it. But if you are on it <laughs> still, you can uh, visit the fan page there uh, under Omnibus Futurelings. There are some wonderful people there. Hilarious. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, 
we don't know how long we're going to be here. There's your ticking clock. Mm-hmm. Man, Robert McKee. I know. When is Liam Neeson going to come in and, and rescue our daughter? Robert McKee got nothing on me. We hope and pray that this catastrophe will be averted. That may never come. But it may come soon. If Doomsday comes soon, this recording, like all of the entries in the omnibus, may be our final word. But if Providence allows us to continue playing in his mind for another week, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Omnibus.